You can see my award-winning climate comedy show spoilers at a festival near you, provided you live near or are going to McHuncliffe or Wells Comedy Festivals. More dates added soon near you, conceivably, who knows what might happen. And if you are at Mac, come and see ComCom Redacted live at 4pm on the Saturday. Go to stuartgoldsmith.com and click the very attractive banner image to find out more. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. This is a podcast from comedianscomedian.com. This is the Comedian's Comedian Podcast. Hello and welcome to the show. I'm Stuart Goldsmith and today I'm talking to a very funny comedian, uh, a lovely man and a new friend. Uh, as, uh, as, you, as you won't necessarily be aware, I had to cut 10 or 15 minutes from the beginning of this podcast because it's just us talking about comic books. <laughs> so uh, nonetheless, this, uh, there's some really excellent stuff here and a voyage of discovery as we delve into the secret history of Mr. Fumbi Omateo. So tell me about your Soho show. You've yes. added extra dates because you sold out your Soho run. Yes, so we're, we're, we're excited to give me more dates, which was really cool because you know when you come back from Edinburgh and you're like, oh, thank God I survived. Yes, <laughs> and then they tell you, you got a Soho run, and you're like, oh, it's going to be Edinburgh all over again. But then everyone was like, no, 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 no. These people have paid to come and see you. Yes. You're going to love the Soho Theatre experience. Yeah, and however much stuff there is going on in London, there is not as much stuff as there is in Edinburgh. So these exactly. people have made a decision. Yeah, they've made yeah. a decision to come. And so Theatre is an amazing like establishment on its own. Mm-hmm. You know, it's a good place to put on any show. And people come in their numbers, you know, looking for shows to watch, which is cool as well. But it's a great experience. I mean, it was the best doing the show again. And realizing that, oh my God, it was funny. <laughs> you know, Edinburgh was lying to me, you know. But um, no, just doing it and, and not having it, because Edinburgh's great, but not having the, um, you know, that pressure of every day trying mm. to do the show the same way and hoping you can deliver even though you have no control over the mood of your audience or what they've seen or where they've been the whole day. Yeah, they might have just come from five shows. I mean, yeah. Alex, one time I was in there, I said, um, you guys all right? They're like, yeah, we're just tired. And I was like, oh, why? They're like, I've seen five shows before yours. Yeah, really, really. And I'm like, oh, wow. <laughs> I'll round up now, should I? <laughs> you know? And, but in, in Soho, they've just come for you. You know, they've okay. hung out maybe during the day. It was in the weekend. So they're like, you know, yeah, we're going to Fumbi's show. And that was great, man. It was really good. And, you know, we had two sold out nights and Christian asked straight um, for another, you know, some, for more available slots, and they gave me another two this in July. Mr. Knowles, your agent, Mr. Knowles, okay. my agent, Christian yep. Knowles. Yes, he um, asked for another two nights, and they was they came back straight away and said, "Yeah, you can have you know 11th and 12th of July, which is a Monday and Tuesday." But I was just really excited to to try and do it again. You right. know, it's nice. So tell me about was this your first Edinburgh doing an hour? My first Edinburgh doing an hour. Okay, because you've been going for a mysteriously mobile amount of time. Yeah, just tell, kind of short, short little t- trips. You know, like okay. the first time I did the Amuse Muse final mm-hmm. in, in Edinburgh. That was my first experience of Edinburgh. Okay, so I was only there for a week. 
you know, it was nice to see everyone else suffer and you're just kind of in and out. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. you see all the other comics like really just going to their shows and trying to focus and you're just like, whew, I don't have to do that. You yeah, know, I just right. do little spots here and there. Yeah, 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 okay. Chill out. Then the next year I did um, uh, a two-hander with um, Prince Abdi. And we just kind of did, um, I think it was East Meets West or something like that. I can't remember one corny name we found, came up okay. with. And uh, we went up there and that was, and I did the lunchtime special with Christian Nose as well, the okay. CKP showcase, which was good. It was um, We did that every every afternoon. Um, and that gave me the feel of Edinburgh, you know. Um, it's, 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 it's uh, it was, I had to learn from watching other people. Because some of my friends were doing hour shows and stuff like that, and so I was just observing it through their eyes. And then the, this this last year I went, I did the first hour. I wanted to go out there, you know, and do. To be honest with you, it was just watching um people like Dane and Ola who would put on a show and done an hour and just saw how you know they put a show together and got the good response and the responses they deserved. I figured you know it's time for me to now you know stop being afraid and just take that jump. Okay. And then I went up there last year with the hour legal immigrant and okay. yeah it was, it was now even before coming to the the Edinburgh Festival mm. you actually have like a secret past within comedy yes in that you've been like you got the newcomer award for yeah. the black comedy yeah. circuit yeah. or what, what was that what was the I like how you award? said secret past to it you know like you know like, well, like, like you have to dig deep and well, find no, no, no. You know, okay, um, the final film he's been I, doing you know well I tell you why I said that is right. because I know that you like you've come from you were on the black circuit for mm. a, I don't know for how like long like 8 years yeah right yeah 2004 I started on that one. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Now, uh, that might not be a secret past, mm, but mm. certainly it's kind of separate from yes. the the sphere of Edinburgh yes, shows that we're used I to. Guess. So I suppose what I'm dancing around is the <laughs> fact that like, you won a newcomer award yeah. on the mainstream yeah. circuit, and then, having been around for eight years. Yeah, yeah, so, yeah. Tell me about that. Well, what it is, is, I guess it's um, when I first died in 2004, um, you know, my sister just called up a, a comedian whose name's Kojo, who was looking for acts to perform at his comedy club. And uh, she just said, yeah, my brother can do five minutes. And I was like, I, I can. <laughs> since, since we literally when? haven't had no, <laughs> no Were you a performer at that time? I, was, you an I actor went to drama or? school. I was at the okay. poor school. Okay. At the time, I was doing drama at the poor school, which is in Pentover Road. And it was um, it was a lot because I was working at Harrods in the morning, going to drama school in the evening. Yes. I didn't understand the concept of drama school, how it's a very demanding place. You know, okay. you really have to be in the right frame of mind every evening to, you know, to do these characters. And it was just taking So the poor school just takes place in the evening, so the that evenings, everyone could yeah. do their day jobs. Yeah, so everyone could gotcha. do their day jobs or do whatever you, you did during the day. But you, it was full on in the evenings. And you come to drama school tired, you're just not going to get the best out of it, you know? Sure. And so, because um, the thing is, I didn't think I could do stand up. I don't know if anyone thinks they can do stand up straight off. I figured, you know what, I'm funny, but I can do comedy acting. You know, I don't want to do stand up because that's a different skill entirely. You know, I was more worried about being embarrassed and not getting people, you know, people not laughing at you on stage. But then eventually I just fucking let me try to stand up. And with the black audiences, it was almost made sense because you didn't have to, you didn't have to go too far to get them to understand you. Do you know what I mean? Okay. In the sense where it was predominantly black audiences, right? So we've all grown up in the same experiences. Okay. Going to the same schools, growing up in the same neighborhoods, experiencing the same clubs. So to talk about those experiences was very simple. It was, I won't say easy, but it was reachable do you know okay, what I mean because okay. I, I, I was Nigerian as well so and there was a lot of Nigerians in the audience presumably still are yes. <laughs> <laughs> of course back then I was Nigerian I was Nigerian now I'm changed. no but being Nigerian at the time there was this buzz um, between Nigerians there's a lot of Nigerians and Caribbeans Jamaicans those are dominant you know black race nations okay. and then you had everyone else 
and if you had like I don't know maybe 70 Nigerians in an audience of 150 people and you just came out with some good Nigerian solid gags you're getting serious laughs okay okay yeah. so they were on your side already so it was um it was so easy to just kind of blow up because it just it just exploded like everybody was into this urban comedy movement it was like it's really funny Chris and Stuart because um, people it was almost like people had, were thinking oh my god finally some comedy I can actually enjoy okay. do you know what I mean that was like okay. the vibe people were coming out in numbers and we didn't even fly for this event it was just word of mouth and then when Facebook came and MySpace and stuff like that it just doubled it so you have all these people coming to these events because they've heard there's some comedians who are really funny people were doing one man shows after two nights at Cork's Wine Bar. Oh my God. Yeah. So okay. I'm talking booking okay. Hackney Empire and booking Cat Theatre, doing like an hour set okay. after just doing, being, being on the comedy circuit for like, what, two months? That's nuts. That is crazy, I, right? I was having this conversation with Tanya Moore recently <laughs> right. about just how nuts it is that there is a black circuit. Yes. Right? I'm going to put my hat, I've never worked the black circuit. I've right. never done any, right. any black circuit gigs. Yeah. Um, I feel slightly weird about calling it the, the black, black circuit. circuit. But we used to weird? call it the mainstream. So okay. we used to call it the white circuit. Oh, okay. we, even though it wasn't the white circuit, yes. we just knew it was predominantly white comics with a white audience. And so yes. we knew to break it to the next level, you had to go on the white circuit. But okay. here was the interesting thing. How do you go away from people calling your name and screaming you and checking you on Facebook? Well, this is people the question. Saying, what the hell is that? You've got to restart all over again, you haven't had to you? Rethink. So... Let's spend a little bit of time about this before we get into the reinvention. Yeah. Um, I have seen some videos that are on YouTube yeah. of you doing Black Circuit yeah. gigs. Yeah. And there's a lot to talk about there in terms of the difference between your performance style, yeah. your energy on stage. Uh-huh. Um, and uh, there's, so there's loads of issues, loads of stuff to talk about. But let's just get into, before we get into that, before you went to the poor school, had you as a, a kid had performative ambitions? No. <laughs> Not whatsoever. Not at all. So who are you? To talk, tell us who you are as a kid, where you are, well, and what you are. The thing is, growing up as a kid, I grew up in London. So okay. um, my parents are Niger- were Niger- Nigerian. I grew up in London, and when you grow up in an African home, it's education because they didn't they didn't see any other way out of. Um, uh, I wouldn't say poverty but the way we grew up they didn't say anywhere that up then you being educated and getting a very good job yeah. to be a lawyer or a doctor or an accountant however if you look at how society works when you grew up in a neighbourhood like Hackney or Brixton or the only way out is through entertainment football or some kind of sport yeah, okay. so it actually made sense to push us into the, into the arts but they never did they wanted us to get education and when I was telling them, a, I'm just, I'm just going to just pause on that for a second <laughs> I've never heard that idea it would make sense yeah. to push you into the arts because it's pretty much much this highest success rate for how these people lead these neighborhoods so do you why do you think people don't do that because, because they have of the real- lottery because of the the, the the idea that my parents can love michael jackson my parents can love a uh, uh, kobe bryant or a uh, uh, lionel messi but to see your child as that person is where it becomes i had a lot of uncles who were like look you can't be a comedian it's not a real you know ambition it's got, it's a hobby yes. you need to go and do something that is tried and tested in their minds. Okay. However, you know, you, 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 when you grow up in this world and you do things and you look around, you realize, you know, uh, even the education ro- road is not 
you know, certified, you know, it all depends on what universities you go to and, you know, the jobs you can get. It's so, it's so much more sure. as well. So, but they don't see that, you know. So were your parents, they were Nigerian. And when did they come to the UK before Ooh, you were born? The seventies, late seventies, okay. they came okay. in. And so, so the, the kind of the, the kind of the cultural map of what's available for your yeah, child yeah. is so different today course, to what it was in the seventies. But anyone coming here is going to go, you've got to be straight, yeah. legit part of the system. Yes. Yes. Okay. And that, exactly. That was a the mindset then because you can imagine then it was different times and so you know you're not seeing any black people on TV so you're telling your mom I want to be on TV like good luck with that you know yeah, right. you see anyone on TV you know and those are the things that um, that you know you, you believe in and then when I, when I was 10 we moved to Nigeria for 6 years yes. so then I'm totally out of you know entertainment in Nigeria it was straight education only recently now they have an entertainment industry and a movie industry that's really big but back then it was unheard of you had to go to school so when I came back to London that's the mindset, you know. I'm gonna get a job. Being, I was trying to be an engineer, Stuart. Don't okay. ask me why. <laughs> no yeah, bro, I, I have to. As soon as anyone says, "Don't ask me why," I have to ask you why. What did it just seem like? That was a thing that would please I'm, your parents. I'm ashamed to say this, okay, because there's no. It, it doesn't even have an association. But I like to change the light bulbs in the house. <laughs> Figured that has something to do with okay. engineering, maybe electrical I, engineering. I'm sure on some level it does. If you find that, sa- what you found that it satisfying to fix a problem. Like Bob, I figured, you know what? I'll take it to engineering now. <laughs> that was my, that was my, my maths basically. Okay, okay. But uh, it made no sense. And, um, but um, eventually you start to, because um, when I went to college, I went to College of North East London in Tottenham. And it was not a college where education was going to be a factor. We were more interested in rap and, hang- and chicken girls. Okay. And I was in the canteen and I used to make people laugh every single day. And it wasn't a thing where I, that was what I wanted to do. It just happened a lot, you know. And I started to think to myself, okay, I have a decision to make. You know, either I continue just wasting time and then, you know, end up working, you know, climbing up the Tesco ladder or... I can make something of my life and try and be, try and use my gift that I felt I had. Okay. And that's when I decided to go to drama school. So, so what kind of funny kid were you? There's lots of different types of funny kids you know, in the canteen. There are, there are. And so everybody, were you the class clown? You're like, no, I wasn't a class clown. The class clown is almost the one that seeks attention. Can't stop being funny. You know, everything is funny. I was more of when it came, I could handle it. Okay. You know, I never tried to be funny. Because I, I, funny enough, I don't like being center of attention. You know, I don't crave that moment. Whereas some people, some funny people, just can't, they couldn't care less. They want to be in that moment, whether they're being laughed at or being laughed with, they don't mind. I'm the guy who wants to be laughed with, not laughed at. Okay. Right? So that's my funny. So it comes from me just being myself. Sometimes I'll go for it. Sometimes I'll just hold back. But I just myself that was my kind of fun and what were you doing were you like making fun of other people were you used to have casting contests okay in school you know when you get into the playground and your mom's ears are so you know what I mean that kind of yeah. stuff to impress girls it's always to impress girls no one cared about a casting contest but you won a casting contest you were the man at least for that day you know <laughs> sometimes you lose sometimes you lose and there's not a sad posture you never lose to the guy who's funnier than you you just lose to that guy who was more creative you know he just had the composure you know yeah the and confidence yeah, yeah. and he wasn't even a funny guy. He just knew how talk, to get you. I, speaking of someone in whose playground there were no cussing <laughs> contests, talk me through. That's fascinating to me. Talk me through. Who are these? All pre-prepared? Are you coming up with them on the spur of the moment? It's always a so guys are hanging around in the playground. It's lunchtime or whatever. We've just finished. Maybe there's no football to play. We're all hanging around. There's girls around. Someone comes, you know. Oh, why is your shirt like? Do you know what I mean? And it starts from there, and you can't back down. You know, you have to 
have the bars. Otherwise, you're just going to look like an idiot the whole year. So you have to just come up with, it's just ways you look at someone, you know, you're just like, oh, your hair is so, who cut your hair? You know, um, did you go to the barber and say, oh, give me the fuck me up? Do you know what I mean? And it was like, oh my God. And then you get the hype, man. Like you need good hype men to win a cussing contest. Okay. You need your guys around you to overhype the jokes <laughs> to make it seem as if you're killing this guy. Oh, I got it. Yeah. Okay, so, so like, even oh if you're... Oh, my God! So, so your joke only has to be good enough oh, that for, they can realistically yeah, yeah. react as yeah, if it was incredible. overhype it. And if you have the great, the good hype men, they overhype your jokes, the other guy gets frustrated. When you're angry, you can't cuss. You just can't. Because you're reaching for it. It's like a fight. You know when you're fighting and you get angry and frustrated, you start hitting so fast and missing your shots. And then you're picked off easily. You can't get personal. You got to back up a bit. When it's getting too hot, you got to say, you know what? I'm losing this one. Let me try and keep my composure. Wait for your moment. But some guys, because of the hype, man, oh, are you going to have that? He said your mom blood. And you're like, so you need a good, so that's like a real, not even a double act. It's like a group. Oh, you need a team. <laughs> you a need team a team. <laughs> so with the hype men, are you guys taking it in turns to be each other's hype oh, men? Oh, no, no, no. Like, I mean, generally on different days. On I mean. different days. No, because there's only one person that can really cuss. Your, your crew members don't want, they don't want it. They don't. They okay. just want to back you up they just want to be uh, around okay, with you because sometimes okay. if you're a good guy if you're a good if you're good at this you'd go for some of the hype men so he's cussing you you know you're losing to him hey why are you laughing though <laughs> yeah then, right okay. you, shift the, <laughs> you shift the focus onto him yeah okay and he can't handle that heat so he's like no well, why are you bringing me in for and if you can kill him don't forget that you've lost to him and go for him <laughs> so it's, it's all about picking how you can win this I am amazed that no one has turned this into Britain's got, Britain's got cusses do you know what I mean that is absolutely oh, he's on the bus home from school oh my god my friend Marlon he was the king in school he used to set off on everyone to the point where people would get on the bus I would get on the bus because i just come back from nigeria so i didn't know the runnings yet i'd okay. been away for a while okay so i wanted to observe how it worked before i got back into the game so i was quiet in school and so we'd get on the bus and i'd sit like far in the front because i didn't want to get involved in the classic because he would pick everyone up on the bus okay. people used to get on the bus just to see him do it <laughs> it was like his own show on the back of the bus <laughs> just chilling what's he doing now have you got any idea he's, he's, he's my, one of my closest friends he's doing music now you okay, know I, mean? I, okay. I said to him we should do comedy because we became good friends and we had like a double act going on so we'd go to like church and stuff like and people we and him would be together we were unstoppable like people try and battle us and we were just it so was would you, you like because you were both cussed do you have your own hype men or would you hype for him or me what? and him were hype for each other okay, me, okay, me okay. and him alone was too much I yeah. mean you'd have your own you'd have the other team's hype men joining us <laughs> They're like, you know what? This is an unstoppable force. Like, we were just incredible. And I remember saying to him, Stuart, yeah, I was like, look, we should do stand up, man. He goes, come on from me, man. Being funny in front of our friends and whatnot is one thing. But being funny in front of a bunch of people you don't know, come on, man, we can't do that. And But we didn't understand the concept of stand up. Yeah. We just thought it was walk on stage and tell a joke right now. We didn't know there was preparation, there was writing, yes. there was new material. Yes. And at the same time, whenever you're you're involved in cussing people, yeah. you're improvising loads of stuff Straight way away. more than way a stand-up. Stand stand <laughs> way more. But because you're thinking there's no pressure, and that's the that's the secret behind stand-up. The ability to be able to take those natural moments of yourself and bring it to the stage is what we're trying to find to do. But we think of the whole, oh my God, you know, there's an audience here, it has to be prepared, it has to be written well, it has to be structured, and I have yeah. to have this amazing punch at the end. But in actual fact, you just have to be yourself. 
because that's yes. what the cussing contests were about. We didn't have no writing. We didn't have no pre-match. Oh, I'm, today I'm going to use this. No, you just hoped you had the right words that day. I can you know? retire that mum material. <laughs> it's been seen too much. <laughs> there was no worried about. Oh my god! I, don't, I hope you know. I don't hope there's any viewers in the, in the audience today. You know, there was none of that. It was just we're going to the playground. People used to look forward to it because it was a natural environment. Sometimes you lose badly. Sometimes you win. And well. what's the what's the uh, what's the emotional fallout of losing badly? Like, oh, how quick man. can you get over it? It's effectively a bad. Do you kid, know what right? it is? It's what, what I used to hate about it was it was the guys who were never involved in the contest who just wanted to rub it on all the time and repeat the jokes in the classroom like during mass. Oh, you should have been in the playground, man. He said his mom had two noses, blood. and it was like, oh! <laughs> you know, you sit there hoping for the next day. Really, you got, sometimes you get, if it's a good like a good session where everyone was on the floor, you're not living that down for at least a month. You know, you, you shouldn't even come to the playground anymore. Just chill out. You've been expelled. No, <laughs> no. Witness protection program. Like, you need to leave because everyone knows, you know, that you just got rinsed in the playground, you know? Yeah. And that was how a lot of, um, I was I was listening to Jamie Foxx at one point and that's how he came up. He said okay. he used to go to Venice Beach and they'd be there for three hours going at it. Yeah, with the best of them in the park. People just going at each other. You know, your mum jokes, your dad jokes, people just going at it. It's like a serious roast and you're like, oh my God, you know? And there was never any like animosity, you know? You couldn't okay. be, you couldn't take it personal. You yeah, okay. put your mum into never, it. It never turned into violence. Never. It, never, it was okay. always just banter. It was just fun, you know? If it got into violence, everybody knew you're emotional, you got, you, you're, it's getting to you and you can't handle it. And yeah. that was even worse. So you said, oh, you can't handle a bit of jokes. You it know can't what I mean? kick up, otherwise it you can't. automatically you, you, look, you just look like an idiot. Like, why are you do, why are you taking it there? This is just a joke. And are there any, in that kind of environment, your school environment, were there any kind of rules as to what was untouchable? Was there anything you couldn't say? Did you ever go well, too far? Yeah, of course, you could go too far. You could never talk about someone's mom if they're passed. You know, okay. if their mum was dead, you didn't do that. Unless you're really looking to fight someone, you left that zone alone. But there was nothing really, personals are always great because that's how you get to someone, isn't it? So, you know, if you're like, oh, I, you know, I, I, you know, I fucked your girl, you're like, oh, 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 everyone starts doing somersaults and everything like that. And you're like, oh. But sometimes, <laughs> Sometimes, you know, you can't get upset because half of the me, we didn't even have girlfriends. You know, yeah, what I mean? right, you know just right, in right, school, right. you know what I mean? Like, why are you getting upset at that, you know? But yeah, it was that kind of, um, you couldn't get upset because you, you, it's like, you know, when you play FIFA with someone and you're destroying them in their house, on their PlayStation, on their controller, <laughs> and their next movie is, I'm not even playing anymore. And they turn off the computer again. We're like, look at him. Like, come yeah, on, right, man. Yeah, right, right. That's like, all man. Like, <laughs> So this is Fumby. I mean, what a lovely man. What a, what a, what a, he's an excellent comic and very, very lovely man to spend some time with. I hope you're enjoying this as much as I did. Uh, I am going to race through these. I always say that today it's true. I've got an awful lot of, uh, keeping the family alive stuff to do. I've got some, I've got some real household tasks bearing down on me and I am starting to wonder how on earth regular people do it. Uh, now that my job seems to take as much, if not more, time as a as a regular job, I swear I started doing comedy so that I'd have an easy life. Wasn't that wasn't that part of the plan? At least somewhere along the way, wasn't it an alternative to working really hard? Who knows? Very much no longer the case. A um, couple of things. Thank you for all of your donations. Uh, very much appreciated. It's nice to see those trickle in, uh, particularly those of you who have set up recurring subscription payments via PayPal on Moonclerk. Uh, all of the infos at comedianscomedian.com forward slash donate. Uh, and thank you as well for the one-off donations that many of you are sending in. Um, I, I did wonder whether I should I mean, I never really talk about the numbers. I say, hey, you know, £5, £10, £20, £50, a pound a show, or just the price of a bottle of wine or a baby gift. 
for a trusted friend. Uh, we say all those nebulous things before. Um, I've had some one-off crackers recently. A, a person who I won't name, but who used to be a comedian uh, and has recently uh, completed comedy, uh, donated £100, which uh, that's a, a very rare occurrence. But every so often, uh, my phone goes ping and a listener has decided to donate £100. So that really is the target to beat, <laughs> if you want to look fly. Um, thank you so much uh, to that listener. We've been corresponding. Um, and also, thank you to everyone who is sending me smaller donations as well, uh, and it's very kind of you. Lots of you say you would like to donate more. There's no need to say that. I, I take it for granted. Um, but uh, if you are a student or uh, a single parent and otherwise impecunious, then uh, then your donations mean all the more to me. Uh, and if you're super rich, I mean, Christ, just go for it, fellas. Um, fellas? <laughs> I don't know where fellas came from there. I was going to say just go for it, man, and then I thought that's sexist. So instead I said fellas. Well done, Goldsmith. Um so thanks for all of those all the information at comedianscomedian.com forward slash donate uh, a letter now an email from listener Katrin uh, she says I've been listening to your podcast since catching you on Jason Manford's radio show a couple of months back and promised myself I'd donate when I got up to date so here you go I don't work in comedy she says ping gold star um, but uh, uh, I was after a distraction to and from work what I wasn't expecting was for it to be such a thought provoking listen and it's actually helped me make sense of the world a little bit or at least understand that there are a lot of people making sense of the world in their own way and it doesn't matter if it's fucking hard as long as you're yourself and try or something and uh, that's i really appreciate the sentiment catherine thank you and for the donation um uh, what i particularly loved was the fucking and the or something <laughs> it's really it, it doesn't matter if it's fucking hard as long as you're yourself and try or something can any of us aspire to any more of a mantra than that thank you catherine thank you all uh, for your donations, for your correspondence. couple of things to promote. I can't spell Schadenfreude, um, but if you Google it, I'm sure you'll be able to find the Schadenfreude Cabaret, uh, which is running a preview season at the Harrison Pub, very near Euston in uh, central London, about 10-15 minutes walk from Euston, uh, and they have been kind enough to give us a special offer. If you use the code COMCOM at tickettext.co.uk, that's tickettext.co.uk, .co.uk. Uh, you can reserve a seat for free. They're free previews, but a lot of them featuring people like Nish Kumar, Simon Munnery, Sam Simmons, and indeed myself, and many, many more. Some of them will fill up, if not sell out, uh, because they can't sell out because they're free. But if you use the code COMCOM at tickettext.co.uk, then you can get a guaranteed free seat. That's quite a good... That's quite a good little uh, uh, marketing ploy, I think, on uh, behalf of the uh, the organisers of Schadenfreude Cabaret, um, because, uh, you know, we're not really flogging anything there, but uh, nonetheless, it, it does let you guys be part of a, a select and secret group that get to book things in advance. So go to tickettext.co.uk, there's hundreds and hundreds of previews there. That's a lie, there are tens. <laughs> there are several tens, um, but do come along to see those. I think I'm on there Wednesday this week, um, doubling up with can't remember but i'm looking forward to it so uh, come along for that and there will be a bucket at the end of the show if you want to donate i, I don't i simply don't approve of buckets you know my feelings on buckets it's a hat or nothing having said that i've recently collected money after shows in both a pint glass and my own kind of held up t-shirt so uh, who am i to talk um there are uh, there's a lot of uh, comcompod veterans on the the bill doing previews at chardon friday cabaret so look out for them 
Uh, as far as my own previews go, we've chucked in a last-minute one at Top Secret Comedy Club in Drury Lane. Myself and Rachel Paris are doing a Saturday afternoon preview on July the 9th at 4 o'clock. Uh, so come and see me and Rachel. You'll know her from uh, Ostentatious, the brilliant uh, Jane Austen impro show. Uh, her own Game of Thrones podcast that I was a guest on earlier uh, in the, the series, in the latest series. And uh, lots of stuff besides her own solo stand-up and musical stand-up stuff, which is absolutely brilliant. Final thing to promo, of course, not only my own Edinburgh show, Compared to What?, which is happening at the Liquid Room Annex at 3.45pm every day of the Edinburgh Festival from the 6th to the 28th, apart from the 15th when I get a sweet day off. Um, so uh, come along and see that that's a free show as well but do bring money uh, and especially I, I don't know if I've released this before this information if not then it's a, a world exclusive on Tuesdays at 6.40pm during the Edinburgh Festival there are three Tuesdays as part of Edinburgh and I've got them all 6.40pm in the Banshee Labyrinth Chamber Rooms I mean that's I know what all those words mean individually, but you'll have to find them for yourself. I am doing the Comedian's Comedian podcast redacted. So come and see a special off-the-record sort of format-gasm of of various little ideas that I'm going to be playing around with. I mean, some of them are really quite cruel ideas, but they're going to be interesting. I think the, the, the idiom of this show is to find ways of really getting, like... You know, you know the bits where I go to my guest. We say, "Oh, we'll, we'll talk about that after the recording." It's sort of about those bits. It's a, a means of trying to access and dig into some people's opinions about comedy that they're less happy sharing in a recorded format. So come and see Comcom Redacted. Three shows only, six forty p.m. for free in the Banshee Labyrinth Chamber Banshee Labyrinth Chamber Rooms on Tuesdays throughout the festival. That's all for now. Uh, keep your donations and your correspondence coming into info at comedianscomedian.com. Do keep sharing the show with your friends and uh, thank you as well for the, the lot of love for the Shappy Corsandy episode. I think you'll agree we're on top form at the minute. There have been some belters recently, but if you've not caught up with the Shappy one, it's particularly timey given the horror of Brexit. Now, let's get back to Fumbi Omate. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Do you remember the first moment when you thought this this isn't just in the playground this isn't just in college there's like who, what was the first time when you went maybe there's I can do this for a job <laughs> you know what and I need never change another <laughs> light bulb <laughs> you know what I was in college one day and they were playing this song and I, no they were, I was in college one day and I was 
uh, I was just joking. I was in the canteen, college canteen. I used to do all my jokes in the, in the green room. And I was just joking about Nigerians. And I was just going in. Because I used to live in Nigeria. I know Nigeria. I was just joking about them. And these two Nigerians in the corner. And they didn't like it. And they thought I was just being rude. And they were going to beat me up. But they were just, I don't know. They, just were waste, I didn't, they didn't choose that day. And so like a week later, I'm in the canteen again. They're playing this song. And I'm doing these jokes to this song. And they're laughing in the corner. These two guys that wanted to beat me up. They're laughing their ass off in the corner. And then they come up to me afterwards and like, man, you're funny. I was like, oh, thanks. We were going to beat you up. And I was like, why? Because you were cussing Nigerians, but we didn't know you were this funny. And they left me. <laughs> and that's when I realized I might have something here. Can I make people laugh to the point where they don't have to kill me? Wow, that's interesting. Because <laughs> that's probably harder than making people laugh to the extent where they just give you money. Yeah. yeah. I was like, like, if you, if you do the comedy to stay alive, <laughs> yes, to, to stay alive. Career. Exactly, just to live, you know. I was just surprised that, you know, I was like, okay, but... I didn't think of it I hadn't discovered stand-up then you know I didn't think of it career-wise I didn't know most of my favourite comedians did stand-up like Eddie Murphy Chris Rock Dave Chappelle I didn't know they came from a stand-up medium I you just, just knew them as film stars movie stars yeah. yeah and so it didn't click then it didn't click until I went on stage for five minutes and when I your realized, sister booked yeah, you this game. it didn't click until and even then Stuart man I was like because for, for when it's a predominantly black audience, it's a different feeling. When you're performing on, to, on the main circuit and it's comedy rooms and they're comedy, um, you know, when you say you have a comedy audience, mm-hmm. an, audience an audience that knows what happens in a comedy club, it's different from like a corporate gig. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, sure. They're not there for comedy, they're there for whatever, and then you're just a comedian. Whereas a comedy audience are there for you, so they know how, how it works. With the urban circuit, it was a very new thing to black people. So it was almost like prove, us your, prove to us you're funny. Okay. You know, it was like it was like the Apollo in America where they want to boo you. Like, that's what they're there for. For them, that's part of the entertainment. Okay. Someone getting okay. booed off stage. Okay, so paint the picture for us then. This, this first, for anyone that's not been to a, uh-huh. an Urban Circuit gig, uh-huh. um, what kind of, how big, I get the impression they're pretty big rooms. I mean, well, I, I see around London, I'll see posters oh, yeah. with like the big names like yeah. Slim, yeah. Felicity, yeah. Ethnic, yeah. Kojo, and, and you'll, you'll just get the impression that it's like, oh, if they've bothered postering this. This, this, <laughs> this is going to be a thousand people Shepherd Bush Empire, yeah, right? right? When it first started, it was at Cork's Wine Bar, which was in um, Bond Street near Selfridges, right? And Kojo had Cork, um, it was in a basement, right? Okay. And that's when I first understood about rooms in comedy. And it's this basement. And when I first did it, it wasn't busy. So when you say when it first started, you mean your... When I first... Your, in 2004, yeah. Because in yeah, 2004 okay. it started. It wasn't as popular. So it's about... With my family, there's about 20 people in the audience. Okay, right? okay. And I did that in... Um, I did my first five minutes in like, what, May? And I lost... It lost his number and I came back in August. When I came back in August, it had doubled to like 200 people. Okay. It just... Word of mouth had just travelled. So on its best days, course, I think the capacity was 200. Okay. On a good night, one good night, we had 400 in there. People jumped the, uh, the fire escape and came in. It was okay, going to happen. Okay. And you come into this room and it's hip hop blasting. You walk in, you walk down the stairs, you know, and then you open the doors and it's like, boom, 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 boom. And you just know you have to be on your A game here tonight. Okay, okay. Now, so how many, how many acts are on the bill? Uh, so Cold used to open with uh, Poet and then you have two comics who are established in the mm-hmm. first half. You have a break, then you have... Um, the new guy for five minutes and then you have an established guy okay so my first my first my second night Paul Chowdhury was on after me mm-hmm. and so he was you know the, the the main guy that night and you walk into this room and it's basement you know bashment music everything just going loud 
and there's girls everywhere. And that's another thing, okay? Girls attract guys. So guys come because they've heard there's so many girls. So everyone's looking nice, you know? Okay. You do not want to die on stage tonight. Okay, <laughs> it's okay. Just not, okay. It's, it's rather not more at stake than I'm trying to think <laughs> of an equivalent it? gig on the, on the mainstream circuit. Right. I don't know. I don't know what it's the equivalent is. It's like performing for Don. Like he's gone to give you another, another 10 minutes at the comedy store. Yes, do you know gotcha. what I mean? Yeah, it's yeah, like yeah. having that in your head. Okay. But this one is more of like, you're not just thinking of comedy. You're thinking, man, if I die here tonight, how am I going to talk to anybody? You know? Okay. I don't know if you've ever done this on a stage and you've had a good gig and you don't know where to go after. You, you're like, thanks, guys. You just want to kind of disappear, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And when you have a bad gig, it's kind of like the same thing as well. I just want to disappear. And you walk down that thing and then, you know, you're, you're there, you're ready. Kojo goes on. He introduces the night. Everyone's in laughing. Mood. He's got the crowd really warmed up. You know, everyone's in the zone. And Corks was, there was no stage. It was the floor. And the crowd was right in front of you. And this is your first stand-up game. This is not my first stand-up okay, game. This okay. is how it was when I, st- I stepped. My okay, first so one, this is, this oh, my first one was more relaxed. Okay. Cole just said I was going on. He told me the format because I called him before. He said two comics on in the first half. I do a break. I come back on, warm them up even more. Then you do five minutes. So at that time, they'll be in laughing mode. And then I have a close. I was like, you know what? That's perfect. That sounds, I can trust that. Okay. I get there on the day. He says, listen, someone's pulled out. I need to put you on first. So I looked at him. I said, what, what, does, what does first mean? <laughs> have, have they, is there a new meaning to first? I don't There's know. There's like an industry term. <laughs> yeah. Like a comedy you mean like first after the first, first half, yeah. You know what I mean? He goes, no, no, no. I need to put you on first. I, I pulled him to the side. I said, I can't go on first. He said, why? He said, why? No, I said, it's my first time. <laughs> You said there'll be two comics, a break, then you and me. I stuck that to my format. That's what's been in my head all night. Can we please do that? He's like, no, look, you'll be fine. Don't worry. Don't worry. Just go out there. Do your thing. I said, okay. I, you know, my friend was the poet on first. He did this poem. I went on. My family was in the audience, which was good. It definitely helped. And I learned my first lesson in comedy. Never take the mic away from your mouth. <laughs> I mean, there's beginner mistakes. <laughs> and then there's not talking into the mic. I know, I it's mean, easy, so easy to so forget, easy. right? You're in the, in, you know, in the headlights of the crowd. Everyone's staring at you. You just think, I can do, this is just talking, right? Yeah. I took the mic away and said something. Everyone's like, huh? I'm like, whoa, <laughs> okay. This thing on, you know? And I learned that straight away. Okay. You know, always keep the mic to your mouth. Because once you take that away, unless you're yelling... You know, as part of the act, they're never going to understand. And had you, you written jokes for this? Had you I wrote jokes. Stuff? I wrote when I was in Canada. I went to drama school in Canada. Okay, I went to drama school in it's Canada. More of your secret I life. I know. I know. <laughs> I went to drama school in Canada before I even went to drama school in London. So I went to drama school in Canada to get away okay. from you know my friends in trouble and just you know start fresh. And in Canada, they told us to do a stand-up setting in as a, as part of the course. Gotcha. So we had to do one in class, and it was awful. My my set. I just. I can't write, Stuart. I can't write my material down. I just talk and I leave it in my head and I play with it until I find the rhythm. Okay. And so in when I went home that night, I wrote an entire set in my book. I just wrote, wrote all the jokes I could think of at that time. So that was what I took to the comedy stores. Five minutes, I chopped it down. I think I spoke about R. Kelly and... Uh, growing up in London as a Nigerian, that was my my shtick. Okay. And you know the black people versus white people stuff. You know the, the from Def Jam. That was my yeah, school yeah. of comedy. You know. <laughs> oh yeah. See, so, yeah, this is the way. This is the way. So um, I did that. You know, I went on. I wrote the jokes. I did my set, and it was good. But this, the feelings I had before it, I thought to myself, no man should have to go through that just to perform. You know, mm. stomach flipping, and I was tired, and I was strong, and I was sitting down, I was nervous, and I just thought maybe comedy's not for me. You know, and I did my five minutes, and I just left it. 
Okay. I didn't. I didn't understand anything about. That was stand-up. your first when you went on first. Like, when I went on first, situation. yeah. Okay. I didn't you understand did, anything. Did you get some laughs? I got loads of laughs. I got loads of laughs. I got loads of laughs. And it was a routine. You know, it was a good routine. It's just that I didn't understand comedy. I thought that was it. I thought once you've done your jokes, you can't ever do them again. <laughs> <laughs> I, I didn't realize there's it. so many more people on earth for me. <laughs> you know, they need to hear it too. But I was like, I can't do these jokes no more. They're done. They've been good. I move on from me. Okay. So I went back to drama school. But then I got kicked out of drama school. They didn't keep me on for the second year because they were like, you know, the work, I was losing the intensity in my work because I was just working so hard at Harrods and I'm just tired. And even drama school you were was hard. A, you were a porter at Harrods yeah. doing like, okay, right. Doing the pellets. Okay. Yeah. Harrods is, yeah. Harrods is like, Harrods is amazing. That was a beautifully East London pronunciation of pellets. Yeah. And um, yeah, so then after I got kicked out of drama school, I was like, I'm down to my last options again. It's either light bulb or try and do this comedy thing. <laughs> so I just said, okay, let me go back. Let me try and do it again. Called Kojo for another five minutes. And he was like, I've been looking for your number. Where you been? Where you been? And by the time I came back to that comedy club, and I thought I was nervous the first night. When I came back the second night and he had over 200 people in there, I was like, I don't want to do this at all. You know? And this time he didn't put me on first, thankfully. <laughs> he put me on in the second half. And that was the first night I felt I could do something. Um... I had the routines, I had the flows. At that time, a lot of the comedy was banter between Nigerians and Jamaicans. Yes. So every Jamaican comedy will come on and destroy Nigerians. And it'd be so easy and everyone loved it. And this goes back to school days because we were the inferior ones in school. But now there's a lot of Nigerians, so we had a voice. So when I was, when they were doing the whole Nigerian stuff, everybody in the comedy club who was Nigerian was tapping me. Like, when you go on from B, make sure you represent us, you know. And I was like, I didn't plan. <laughs> what, what, with this being gig number two? <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> you really got to represent. You know, you're here for your I'm like, really? <laughs> and I'm just sitting there thinking, and you know what? I didn't prepare any Jamaican jokes. I was just, I had this routine I was going to do that was going to be five minutes. I was structured and everything. But everyone was like, you got to go on. You go, Come on, they're dissing us, man. You're just going to leave us out there. I was like, all right, good. So I added this little intro that I was going to do to, you know, give Nigerians back their face or whatever. Yeah. I do that. It works. What happens? I forget my train of thought because it wasn't part of the set. Uh, and you know, in your mind, you've set the jokes up so that everything's like a link. So you can just flow. So I don't have to think of where I'm going next. Yeah. And then of course you forget one joke and suddenly the and chain's broken. The chain's and ruined. So I forget. And I go blank on stage to it. And I learned my second lesson in comedy. <laughs> Never panic when you go blank on stage. Okay. Relax. If you panic, it's game over. So I just took a deep breath and I actually said it to the audience. I said, oh man, I forgot what I was going to say. And someone said, oh, and I pulled out an imaginary tissue paper from my yeah. p- p- pocket, my pocket. It was tissue. Wrote nothing on this tissue, by the yeah. way. Looked and goes, oh, there it is. And I just started talking again. <laughs> there was nothing on that piece of tissue. Okay. Nothing written at all. But I just knew I need to gather myself. Sure. And I need to find it and then carry on. Because the sharks were waiting. <laughs> Everyone was leaning like, oh shit, here we go, here we go. But I managed to save it. I went on too long. And Kojo was not happy about that because I went on way longer than I was supposed to. I didn't realize time. Again, all these things you're learning. Mm-hmm. You know, a five minute routine is a five minute routine. Just because it's going well doesn't mean she stayed there for the rest of the night. Yeah, to be fair, if this is your second gig, you've only just got your head around holding the mic towards <laughs> your <laughs> mouth. Yes, yes, <laughs> you kind of understand where you might need a you know, flash. And then, you know, Poor Chowdy went on and, 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 um, and, and you know, he, he went on and did his thing. And Kojo told me something very interesting that night. He said to me, he said, listen, don't always do, don't go over your time. Always leave them wanting something more. You know, and which is really good. A good comedian knows when to come off. I've seen so many comics who get that big laugh at the end of a routine 
you know, and they think, you know what? Wow, that was a good laugh. Let me try and yeah. get another one. And you won't get that other one. Yeah, yeah. You know? I noticed that a lot with the Americans. American comics oh tend God. to... They don't do any of this kind of like put the mic back in the stand. I'll tell you this before I leave kind of stuff that for some reason loads of British comics do. Americans tend to go, that's the punchline. That's the bigger punchline. That's the fever pitch punchline. You've been great, bro. And then throw the mic in the air. Exactly. And a lot of urban comics didn't realize that. They thought the, the idea of a good gig is. I'm, I just keep killing it you know everyone just keeps ooh, ooh, ooh. but the idea of a good for me anyway the idea of a good routine and a good gig is when you know that that's enough you know I've done this great stuff and I've told this story here that story there I've got this last punchline and let them want to look for you after that so you know what i got to hear more of this guy you know and I had to learn that you know in that five minute routine yes. which was which was a good experience you know, a good lesson and then after that I got more comfortable and understanding how to do comedy okay and then I got nominated that year for the best newcomer award at the Black Entertainment Awards now you have to remember I hadn't been awarded for anything you know I was just like whoa this is this is great you know I'm gonna get awarded well, if I won <laughs> and we had this whole voting thing you know everyone was getting involved and it was at the Hackney Empire and and I won. I won that night. And it just changed my whole... That's when I started to think... Well, I thought anyway that um, maybe I could do something with this. But I didn't understand the industry. And the, 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 the under, I still didn't understand comedy. I didn't understand routines. I didn't understand how to progress and how to make this actually a career. And that's what I had to learn. And that's why I was on there for eight years because it got too comfortable. So the, so you were making a living from it? Yeah, well, the not money's living. Okay. I was working part-time. The money's incredible. Um, that's but kind the, of what I was hinting at. <laughs> <laughs> the consistency of the shows isn't. Oh, I see. So you see, the thing is, Stuart, on the main circuit, yeah, you do gigs every single day. When I started doing um, the main circuit in 2012, I was still raw, rough around the edges. And I'm not saying I'm the finished article now, but I'm 10 times better than I was in 2012. That's because of constant gigging. On the urban circuit, I could do a show in January, uh, one big show at the Indigo too. And I'm making what 400 pounds for a 20 minute set. Okay. That won't be 20 minutes, by the way. They'll come up to you towards the end of the show, but like, listen, man, we've run over time. Can you do a quick five? Yeah. And okay, you're like, yeah. oh man, I have so much to say in this yeah. 15 minutes, but hey, <laughs> oh, if it's five, 400 pounds, I'll keep it down. <laughs> and you're not growing, you know? And, 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 you know, the urban circuit gave me everything I had in terms of performance um, stage persona because if you can handle a black room full of black people you, you can go on to any stage at least because it's really uh. well, talk, talk, talk to me specifically about that when you say it's really because uh, what's you, the difference in right you've seen Def Jam right yes I have right when you walk on that stage there was a Def Jam with Bernie Mac and he comes on and his first line I is I ain't afraid of you I ain't afraid of you <laughs> Man, motherfuckers that's the, best the reason why he did that was because yeah. Before he came on, they had booed every single comic. I had heard that. Okay. Stuart, I'm not talking boo. I'm talking boo. Like yeah, you stole yeah. my money, boo. You yeah. know? Like it's <laughs> personal boo. And so everybody was terrified. And so Bernie Mac, they were even saying to Bernie, look, you don't have to do it tonight. They're clearly not in the mood. He's like, no, 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 no. I'm not going to be afraid of them and that's why he comes out and it's almost like you have to fight for your respect <laughs> that routine you, you don't understand I ain't scared of you yeah, motherfuckers yeah, that yeah. is that is an incredible I would urge anyone listening to Honestly, this to because po- press pause and watch that watch on YouTube that, yeah because you're just watching and how a man wins an audience 
producer needs to do that. He would yeah. say he used to come on, piss the audience off, and try and win them over. Straight, I would never try that. Yeah, I, I, I want them to love me as soon as I walk on. So, so is that so in the in the UK urban mm. circuit? Mm. It's informed by Def Jam. Why? Because the audiences have been watching Def Jam, or yes. because the promoters have the been watching have been Def watching Jam, Def Jam, Jam and setting Jam. it up like that? Yeah, the audience have been watching Def Jam. Remember when the, when it's a black comedy room, it's got the hip hop music, it's got the loud hip hop music. So everyone's in a party mood. Everyone's yeah. in a good mood. Everyone's in good vibes. But um, I won't say they're easy, they're hard to impress. I just feel like they demand more. You know, it's almost like when you come on that stage, you have to have, you have to be able to make us belly laugh. And when they, when you make them belly laugh, they give it up. I mean, I've seen chairs move in an urban comedy club. You know, from the punch, and you're just like, I'm a rock star. And know? is there is there a breadth of styles on the urban circuit in the same way as there is? Like, are you going to get yeah. one line of comics and right, absurdist? Right, and right. I think that was the only problem the culture of comedy wasn't, uh, wasn't, they didn't know the culture of comedy. So they wanted haymakers from the jump. You know, they didn't want a, a, a nice decent story, you know, that's going somewhere or a one-liner comic or an observation. You know, some comics who are quirky and stuff like that, where if I go on the mainstream, they give them time to, you know, develop and get to, oh, I get what he's doing there. On the urban scene, there was no real room for that. You know, they were so accustomed to people knocking the mic out, it was like you had to bring that Oh, don't come, you know? So there was no storytellers. It was just straight boom, boom, boom. There was a lot of, you know, black Buddhist, white people do that. A lot of Nigerians do this, Jamaicans do that. Yeah, and when you, when you say as well, Nigerian, Jamaicans, you mentioned on one of the, the clips that I saw of one of your uh, yeah. of, uh, urban circuit gigs yeah. was um, you did a thing about Ghanaians as well. Yeah. So there are presumably a whole broad range oh, yeah. of stereotypes oh, of different... Oh, yeah. I mean, okay. that's, what we, that's what we milked. And if you, you can imagine if you were Ghanaian and you had a Ghanaian comedian who did a joke about Nigerians that was so good that everybody loved, you could own Ghana the next day. Like, people would love you for it. You know, anything you could. I had this what are, they, are those the three main groups? Are there other... So it was Niger- Nigerians. I said Niger- the main groups were Nigerians and Jamaicans because okay. we're the biggest nations in our continents. Gotcha. Right? And so we had the most numbers. And no one likes us because we're arrogant. It's like the English. We're the loud... The Welsh don't like us. The, yeah, they don't like us because we're the biggest, we're the loudest, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know. It's that kind of feeling. And... So you had Nigerians in the room. So you had a lot of Nigerians in the office, you know, in the room. You'd have like at least 100. Then you have at least a number of 100 Jamaicans and then the rest were Ghanaians, wherever you want. And the, the rivalry from Nigeria and Jamaica came from school days. Yeah. And we were at the back foot all the time. So now you have a platform where we can just go out and say, gotcha. look at you Jamaicans and blah, blah. And everyone's laughing from, from the belly. They're like, wow, this is incredible. So did you find, you something you alluded to earlier on, did you find that it was... After those eight years on the circuit, do you still do black circuit gigs at the moment? Not as much. Not as much. So Not why is that? You've lost the, the taste for it? Is it less of a... If I'm honest with you, Stuart, um, as much as I, you know, as much as some of those, some of the material, some of the gigs were great moments, you know, I feel like there's no development. Okay. And we have to develop. We have to do better as comics, you know. You see on TV today, everyone's talking about diversity and you need more black people on TV and stuff like that. And it's not a case of more black people on TV. You'd like more shows involving black people, but it also has to, it's both ways, you know. We have to be prepared as well to put out good content, you know, to put out good work. And a lot of the times on the urban circuit, when you do the shows, the material suffered a lot, you know. You had people thinking just because I'm Nigerian, I could be a comedian. You know, and egos came in. So you, you do your first show and it's like the Hackney Empire. You get a thousand people laughing. You think you're Chris Rock. Next thing you know, you're calling that same person. He's got an agent, you know, no, no a real agent, just his buddy. <laughs> <You know? laughs> he's okay. charging, he's doing 700 pounds a show. And you're like, but you just saw his first show yesterday. You're like, you know, and so no one really knew about the material aspect of comedy. 
you know, where it was, you're only as good as your content, you know, if you're not, and, and also as well, we were popular for selling our big venues. So you don't hack the empire, the indigo too. And that was great. It's good progression, but the content lacked. And I'm a, I'm, I'm, my thing is always, you never talk about the venue a great comedian played. You always relate what he said. You know, the Bill Hicks, the Carlings, the Chris Rocks. No one cares what venue they played. You quote that material, you know, that game changing, that thought process. That, wow, how did he get to that punchline? And none of us didn't have that. And that was never going to work. So which, what bits from your Black Circuit material are examples? Was there anything in there that you felt like this is, this is the beginning of like, because there's something I talk about in the show a lot is legacy. The idea of having a joke that people will be quoting 50 right, years from now. Right, Did you, and I'm not sort of asking, to, what, what, what from the stuff we're going to be quoting 50 years from now? But obviously if you, if you started to feel like there's, there's something more out there, I'm not mm. satisfied with mm. coming out and doing I mean, I don't, is generic the right word? Yeah. You know, that kind of like those yeah. haymakers yeah. from the jump, as yeah. I'll be saying yeah. from now on. <laughs> yeah. From the jump. <laughs> but what what stuff did you have that you started to think, this, this could be a bit, this could be like a signature bit rather than just more? Well, you, again, not, never. I never thought yeah. of it like that. I just knew I was funny. I had this joke when I would say, because we used to want to be Jamaicans when we were in school, when we were a kid, because Africans weren't cool. And I said, my name wasn't even Fumbi, it was Fumbert. And it was such a quotable joke. People used to call me Fumbert. They okay. loved that joke and it was quotables. And I was just thinking to myself, wow, people people would message me, yo, Fumbert, man, we just say that in my school all day. So I was just like, wow, I mean, this is uh, uh, it's interesting. People are quoting this joke. I didn't even know it was that funny, you know? Yeah, okay. And so I started to think of it in that sense. Then like, why is, it, why is that happening, you know? And then you start, it was only when I started doing the mainstream, I realized how you do bits, how one, I just left that Fumbert joke at that. You know, but okay. I didn't know about expanding on that. Yeah. Maybe, make, maybe making Fumbert a character, even you know, who comes on as Fumbert. I didn't think of it like that. Only until I got to the mainstream. On the urban scene, it was more of a case of popularity. It was more popularity than we, you had urban comics who had ten thousand followers on Twitter, ten thousand followers on Twitter, and they're not even writers or anything like that. They're just doing urban shows, you know. And so, the popularity aspect of the of the industry of the um, urban circuit was great. But again, it was just, I always, I always used to say it was hype over substance. Okay. A lot more hype than there was substance. And eventually, eventually hype dies down and you need substance to keep you there. Okay. So just to continue this analogy of you doing the cuss battles at school with your yeah. hype men, yeah. the audiences on that circuit, you felt were just like a hype man audience. They yeah. were just loving it. They were just exploding. Yeah, the way but then you eventually, you were earning. Yeah, but then eventually they would want more. So you just get the audience saying, this whole Nigerian Jamaica thing is getting a bit played out now. Okay. Do you know what I mean? Like they started to see through it and they wanted more. And you know what I mean? So it became a thing where it was like, this is just not enough. It's not enough to just come out and be Nigerian. And I was, I was disappointed in myself to come out and get away with a show just because I'm Nigerian. So now I even have to work on my material or work on my punchlines. I just You're knew. Just doing it all on, yeah, on I just what knew. kind of charisma. Yeah, yeah. And okay. I, I, that's what I worked on a lot, my charisma. Yeah. I just knew. Come out, like, you know when your mom used to, and then just run off that. I, I didn't have to worry about that. But then at the same time, as I started to get older, I started to have more opinions. Like I'd have a, a, a routine about the London riots and stuff like that and find punchlines in there. And I started to realise that my audiences were almost maybe not, maybe too, I don't know, maybe immature. Because it was like, you know, a lot of uni crowds, so maybe they didn't really have the focus points. They were more interested in, you know, social media and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. So I just knew I'm going to have to do something different to progress. So had you seen, uh, what was the first mainstream 
gig that you went to? Up the creek in Greenwich. Okay. Shout out to Polly and David Gelly. Yeah. Polly, Polly McGraw and David they, <laughs> Polly, Great funny club, thing man. is, I, but you know what? I went there just after the World Cup. And they did a routine there and I didn't like it. Now, this is the thing, Stuart. This is what comics know. You die on Monday, you get back on on Tuesday. I died on Thursday, didn't come back till next year. <laughs> I said, you know what? The urban scene treats me way better than this. <laughs> you know, I, I was too afraid. Yeah, well, once you're in a situation of being effectively like, were you a headliner on the Black Circuit? I case? was the man. Well, yeah. No. Yeah. <laughs> I can see you're going to be ringing me tomorrow going, can we dial back some of the claims I have made? <laughs> I was, my name was good. People yeah. knew who I was. Yeah. I was getting stopped in the streets. People were like, oh my God, I love you. I did a one man show. I cat for the theatre. I was good. But one thing I loved about everything was I was never satisfied. Inside, I knew I'm lying to myself. Because my favorite comics were Chris Rock, Dave Chappelle, and I watched their material and I put mine to the test and it just didn't add up. And I'm just like, I know there's more than this. Then I watched Jerry Seinfeld do stand up. Now, a lot of people don't, you know, have their opinions on Jerry Seinfeld. But what I loved about him was how he set up a joke about something he just thought was funny and how he got to his punchlines from that. Because, you know, every comedian has something to learn from, whether you think they're funny or not. And so I realized I'm doing something wrong. There's no, there must be more You're not to what following, like, what you're saying about Jerry Seinfeld is that he was, he was finding a way to make things he thought were funny, yeah. funny for everyone else, everyone, rather yes. than pandering to what... To an audience. Yeah, okay, and, yeah, and that's yeah. the key, you know, you can't pander, you know. Um, I, I think my brother told me a quote once, he said, um, an, art, um, an entertainer gives the audience what they want. An artist gives them what they need, you know. Entertainers come on and they satisfy the crowd. It's great. But when you're that artist, when you're that guy, you give them what they didn't even come for. And they're like, wow, I didn't even expect that. And that's how you win. And that must be one of the hardest things about oh switching uh, streams, if oh, you like, yeah. to, to, be a, to know that if you do a five-minute open spot to ten other comics in God knows where, some <laughs> little London mainstream, you know, inverted commas, mainstream yeah, circuit, yeah, yeah. where there's, I mean, presumably a few more people doing it, a bit yeah. more competition, yeah, a bit more harder to get yeah, gigs. Yeah, yeah. And so you, you do a gig there and then you're on the bus on the way home, like someone who, who couldn't then decide to go, I'm just going to ring someone and book myself a big, yeah, you know, yeah, cat yeah, for theatre yeah, gig yeah, somewhere yeah, else. yeah. Is, it must be hard not to not to revert, of not course. to go ah oh, stuff this. I made the wrong decision. I'll go back and of do course. what I know. Of course, a lot of the urban comics. I tell them all the time: jump on the mainstream. It's hard. It's hard to go from people loving you to people not understanding what you're talking about. You know, like they don't get these references, and that's where the comic had to come out. Do you know what I think? It's it might be this might be completely wrong. I feel like it's similar to. Have you ever done comedy club for kids? Yeah, well, <laughs> what, what is that no face? Way. What's that expression? Because kids, man, I'd be scared. As hell. Yes, that's why so few people do it. Yeah. It's a similar sort of jump where you yeah. go from I can absolutely master this room in this yeah. crowd, yeah. and it's just a whole different ball oh game. And you go, it just puts you right back to being an open spot. Again. Yeah. Oh, I don't fancy. No, I don't fancy being vulnerable again. No, no. and you know what it is, Stuart? Who, which I mean, comics. Our uh, being vulnerable, you know, it's beautiful. It's beautiful when you see comics you see on TV. And you see them still being vulnerable at a gig they're not sure of, you know, if they've not been to in a while. I saw Jack Whitehall at um, Top Secret. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I hadn't seen him since, because I did his show, TNT show, back in the day. I hadn't seen him since. And I was like, how you doing, man? You good? Just, you just trying some stuff? Because, yeah, I'm, you know, you got, you got to work this muscle. You could see in his face, this is a TV guy. He's going to walk out and they're going to love him anyway. But he still had that respect, you know, that vulnerability of like, you know what? Yeah, I'm Jack Whitehall, but I can go out there and they'll be like, oh, you're not that funny anyway. And that's... I, you need to have that on the urban circuit it was going I didn't have that vulnerability so talk to me then about the, the difference between 
So how long? Sorry, but I'm just kind of getting the timeline. So sure. you did the the amused moose. So you started doing new new um, uh, new so act I, competitions. I started doing. So I did. I did. I went to Top of the Creek in 2012, and I remember. So in 2011, I didn't like the set, so I bottled it and I okay. didn't come back. Then I had to make a decision. Stuart. It was like you know, what, look, either you do this or you don't. You know, either you do this or you don't. And so. Um, I went down there, booked another five minutes. My brother told me one thing. Stop looking at the audiences as black or white. Just look at them as an audience and talk to them on a level that everyone can relate to. And you'll be fine. So I, thankfully, the Olympics was, was, was um, big at the time. Yeah. So I just wrote a whole routine about the Olympics. Took it, had five minutes, took it to the up the creek. And Polly, was, when I walked in, she was like, hi, you've been here before. And I was like, yeah, because you've seen the name Fumbi, right? You've done the math and realized it's only one Fumbi. No, she goes, um, you've been here before. And I was like, yeah. She goes, thanks for coming again. I didn't realize what she meant was, I remember you from last time. I thought yeah. she just meant your Fumbi because I can see by the name. Yeah, yeah, And I was yeah. like, you know, you've been here before. I've seen you perform it. But I was like, oh, yeah. She goes, yeah, thanks for coming back. Put me on. It was a competition that night. Okay. I came for five minutes of material. She goes, this is a competition, by the way. And I'm like, are you serious? 13 acts. I was like, second to last. That's comedy, Stuart, man. <laughs> 13 acts in a basement, in a, an up the creek, seven, eight people in the audience. I mean, I walked, I'm, I'm used to walking into a room with black people and it's a club. You can have a rave after this, you know? And I was like, yeah, this is, and it's scary, but I feel alive now. I go on stage, try my five minutes. I end up winning that night and I come back for the finals and I win in the final. Then I said, okay, I'm just going to enter all these competitions. Five was decent. And use that to, you know, see what I can do. Enter the Muse Moose. And you remember, again, a lot of the times when I was doing the urban circuit and when I was trying to find myself as a comedian, that fear, that vulnerability, that uncertainty always crept in. Like I'd book myself into new material nights and I'd bottle it. I'm like, no, I can't do it. I, I'm not ready for it. I, I don't have to joke, so I'm not funny enough. But then I had to stop doing that. And so I entered all the competitions and that's when I started to understand how you stretch out jokes, how you can write more, how you can find more in a, in a great punchline. And then I started putting a routine together. And before I knew it, I had a decent 10 minutes. I've got to ask, did you feel a bit of a ringer turning up at a new material act, knowing that you've sold out your own show before? <laughs> this is the thing, though. This is the thing, and it's the interesting part. Nobody paid attention to the urban circuit. Nothing you did on the urban circuit was even seen as valid. No one even knew who I was on the mainstream. It's only if I told them that I'd done the urban circuit that they'd be like, oh, wow, okay, yeah, I've heard about that circuit. And plus, none of the material I used on the urban circuit could even transcend. Well, let's talk about this. Let's talk about the difference in, yeah. in material. Yeah. And the difference in your... I think the first, the most apparent thing to me watching your, your two or three different gigs that are on YouTube, from a comedy store set mm. to a gig from 2008, I think it was, mm -hmm, a Black mm -hmm. Circuit gig. Mm -hmm. You are on the black circuit gigs. You are so much more animated. Yeah. 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 Talk to me about this because it's very Stuart, engaging. Man, how do you know my secret? <laughs> <laughs> you know what it is, Stuart. Yeah. And this is you know I, I feel comfortable talking with you. You know this is a good podcast. I'm going to shout that out. You know it's really good. Um, it's it's just a case of when you grow up in growing up in in England and just being a minority, you always feel. Um, I guess around black people, you feel like you can be yourself. Around other races, you feel like you're an ambassador for black people. So you don't want them to leave thinking the stereotypes. You want them to think, leave thinking the right things. So when I'm on the when I'm on, when I'm in front of black people, I'm just myself, you know. And I'm and I'm getting better at it. I'm getting better at being myself. But I, I'm in front of black people, I am myself. I'm from me. I can switch to the street slangs. You know, I can say whatever because I know they're gonna get it. It's gonna rock. It's gonna be good. 
whereas we've in front of white people it's a predominantly white audience I do put on the professional jacket I'm a professional comedian they're gonna understand my jokes but it's not gonna be all essence of fumbi you know and I'm I'm breaking that gradually that's something you're kind of working towards it's something, I'm, work it's yeah, something okay. I'm trying to be honest about you know cause like it does throw you when you walk into a room and you're predominantly white people you're the only black person there and you know that's why I always start the set with you know you guys ready for the um, ethnic part of the show just to break the ice let's get that out of the room and let me just try and do me and I'm getting there when I first started no way no way it wasn't even close I was this other guy doing stand up you know whereas now I've been able to just relax more not worry about what's going on and just try and be a comedian you know is is there and I'm guessing and tell me if I'm on difficult territory <laughs> is there an element to which you don't want to be too deaf jam in front of a white oh audience my God. because you'll feel like you're yes. conforming to what yes. we're expecting yeah and you know there is an element of that there is an element of that and um you just want to because you know Funny is different in different levels. Whereas I, I, I grew up on Def Jam and I loved Def Jam for what it was when it was then. But I did realize a lot of the comics were just one trick ponies. It didn't take, when I started doing comedy properly and I'd watch Def Jam, even though I love it for nostalgia reasons, I know why that comic isn't progressing because I'm like, you know, that's just not going to last. You're going to need more than that in the real world. You know, you look at the Chris Rocks and the Dave Chappelle's, their material is not, you have a fucking girl so hard she pass out. It's, it's just not that, you know, <laughs> there's more to it. You know, I watched Mike Epps um, special on, um, on Netflix and he's almost 50, I guess, in his 40s and he's coming out and he's opening the, where the weed at? And you're like, really? At 40? Come on, man. Like, do you have more than that? And that's what I didn't want. So you're right. There is that idea of like, you don't want to be a Def Jam comedian. You want to be a comedian who people respect your content. You know, you provoke thought. People leave that set thinking, oh, I didn't know that. As opposed to, I expected that, you know? And that's what I always try to avoid. Before I got on, I read every single review on Trotter of every black comedian. That's interesting. What did, you, what did you glean from that? You know what? Everybody talks about. You can speak as delicately as you want here. This is fine. Everybody think, talks about. Um, I forget his name. The reviewer. Um, Bennett. Steve Bennett. Steve Bennett. Everyone talks about him. Everyone was talking about him. It's funny because everyone says he doesn't know what he's talking about, but you want that review in chore. Absolutely right. For those of you listening, for people listening to this yeah. who uh, who are unfamiliar with this, there's a particular comedy website called Chortle. And when I think it's fair to say, when you are a new comic, oh my god, you believe that it is the be all and end all. And I, I, I remember talking about it years. Ago. I can't believe we've been doing the podcast for years. <laughs> years ago, I remember like my kind of the way I see that website is the only problematic thing with it really is that it's the only one or right. it was the only one there's the loads time, yeah. more now but it was the only one mm-hmm. so it's not the fault of anyone that runs it but yeah. if it's the only source of information for comedy if you, he's the only person trying to review everyone yeah. then his review suddenly seems far more important than, than what review. it actually was yeah. yeah and so I read all the reviews and it, it hurt because it hurt in the sense of what he was saying had some substance you know, he said a lot of them had stage presence, but no real content. And that was the truth. You know? So you're a post-chortle black comic. Yeah, I am, I am, I am. And I, I, I said to myself, even if not what he's saying is completely true, or maybe he's a bit harsh at saying it, I said, rather than me saying, no, man, you don't know what he's talking about. He's a decade. Duh, 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 duh. Let me just try and, you know, take both ends of the stick, bring the stage presence and try and bring the material. And in fairness to Steve, when he did write about me, this is exactly what he said. You know, and so um, 
that's but I just didn't want to come out as everybody else did. I didn't want to do that. I wanted to make sure I understood what I was trying to do. I wanted to have I wanted my content to be much better than me being cool on stage. You know? I wanted to people to come up and say, That joke there made me think. And that's what I wanted, you know, and that's what I worked for. That's why I read all those reviews. That's why I took my time before I jumped on. Because I didn't want to, I didn't want to be that guy, you know, just doing comedy because it's cool and, you know, the Def Jam thing and you get girls after the show. I, that wasn't for me. I wanted people to genuinely laugh because I love Chris Rock. I love how he makes people think. And if I like him as a comedian, I would emulate what he does. I love Bill Hicks, you know? So what in your own material at the moment, what's the bit of material that you're most excited about that you feel <laughs> like you've got the beginnings of the next phase of you? You know what? I'm talking a lot about my identity, being British and Nigerian, you know, having Nigerian parents, growing up in Britain, having, you know, experience in Britain. Like, for instance, my mum, this is the part I'm, I'm working on now. My mum is blaming Eastern Europeans for all the crime in Dagenham and, you know, the jobs. And she's like, you know, they've come here and they're ruining the, 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 the neighbourhoods. I'm like, mum, remember when that was us? <laughs> you know? And it's just an ex- amazing thing to see that now we are looking down on people. It's like, really? Oh, we're there now. And I'm trying to explain explore those avenues of um that that aspect of britain now where it's like you know they feel almost as british as the people who are moaning about you know refugees or whatever they feel that they feel that connection now so i'm trying to talk about that because again everything i speak about is from my experiences and from how i grew up in this country a lot of people don't know like for instance the black circuit people didn't even know there was you know why would there be a black circuit there's an asian circuit i did an asian gig for 100 asians the other day <laughs> i gotta admit i did not know there was and an was asian like, circuit where are you guys he's working on the asian exactly circuit. but he consistently calls me saying i'm doing this gig here i'm doing that gig there and it's another thing that maybe i should try and discuss on stand-up is like why are these rooms why do these rooms exist you know is it not is funny not funny can we not all just laugh together? But people genuinely feel I'm not going to get me if I go there. But if I go here with a bunch of poor Chowdhury's and all the other Asian comics and all that, I'm going to get me. I'm going to get my stuff out. I'm going to hear my stuff, you know? Same as Nigerians. You have Nigerian comedy galas in London where they sell out the Indigo, which is 2,000 people and it's sold out. And these shows are like eight hours long, like 400 comics. I'm exaggerating. I'm exaggerating. But so many comedians, entertainers and everything, these people pay good money and they sit there and they enjoy the entire evening. And so I'm trying to explore those things in my stand-up where it's like, you know, it's just an interesting thing for me where we live in this country, but there's so many subdivisions of things that go on that you don't really see unless you've been in that world. So do you see... I'm trying to phrase this question in my head. Do you do you see comics at the Edinburgh Festival, say, mm-hmm. the alternative? Because obviously the mainstream circuit is sort of subdivided, if you want to subdivide it into something different genres mm-hmm. and categories. Do, could you see someone like... Have you seen Tim Key? Yes. Could you see Tim Key, with what he does, mm-hmm. working in an urban circuit? Room? No. Despite no. the fact that, you know, he is unquestionably funny. Yes. And his funniness is in is in kind of subtlety and invention and stuff like yeah. that. Is there is there a I suppose what I'm asking is is there any gig where those 
audiences actually come together. It would be interesting. I, I don't think I don't think about the Edinburgh Festival. I mean, Tim is a, obviously he's a, an extreme example. Yeah, yeah, I don't think about an Edinburgh Festival. However, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying there's a certain black set of black people that will not find him that will find him funny because there's a group of black people that might, might be into his comedy. But the urban rooms we played, the co- comedy um, Coke's Crime Bar, Kojo's Fun House in that basement, there was no room for that. You have to come with fire. Like, I mean, they'll give you a chance, but once they're not getting where you're going, it will just be a long day. And is that is is there a danger that that mentality is self-perpetuating? Yeah. And that if you and the other comics on that circuit think we have to do a certain thing, mm. then you make your own bed. Because yes. you, you, you know, there's no room to educate. There's no room for creativity. No room for creativity. That's the problem with that. There will be no room for creativity. My are friend you gonna, Ola, are, are, Can you envisage Black Circuit comics listening to this and going, hey, I'm creative. What the hell? Um, I don't. If they, I don't think. I don't think they'll take it like that. Because I'm not saying they're not creative. I'm saying we kill the room for creativity. You see what I'm saying? So everyone's doing the same thing because we're afraid to do something else if it's not accepted. Ola, do you know Ola the comedian? Yes, I do. Ola's, Ola's my fantastic. friend. Yeah, great comedian. Couldn't be accepted on the black circuit. Haunts him till now. No, because way. he's different. He's okay. very, very different. He's slow paced. He's builds up. You know, he has quirky. He has, I'm um, sorry, hit, um, hidden gems where it takes the thinker to get. And sometimes they just didn't want that. And he knew straight away. He would go, he would go book him for a show because some, some promoters would like him and he'll tell them, I'm not your comic. You're not the one I want. You want someone else who's going to get this, give the crowd what they want. And that haunts him for a long time because. And he's a great comedian. He's an excellent comedian. Excellent comedian. He, he has everything. He knows everything about comedy. He's the one that told me to jump on the main circuit, you know? But, and that's the problem with that aspect of the urban circuit. The room for variation is not there. They want the same. It's almost like, but I don't know if it's our fault though, Stuart. Do you know what I mean? For not giving them variation. Or is it there? It must be our fault because they will only take what you give them. You know, if they, and the thing is this, the same people who were not checking, who were not giving the room for creativity or the audiences who were a bit tough, when they see us now in the main rooms, they're so more accepting, you know, it's like, wow, I really enjoy what you're doing. You're like, I didn't think that could work on an urban circuit. Now, when I do an urban circuit show now, I have to make a decision. Am I going to pander? Am I going to do the set I've been doing on the mainstream that's been getting me this leeway? What am I going to do? You know, I have to make that decision. Sometimes I fail and I pander. I go straight back to the Nigerians make some noise. You know, yeah, okay. sometimes I'm like, I'm not doing that tonight. I'm going to go out there. If I die my ass, I die my ass. And it's that, that, you know, it's that, it's that deep sometimes, you know, because you don't want, you know, a comic wants to lose. You know, you always want to have a good night. But sometimes I just knew in my heart, I can't go on stage and do this show. Like I, I turned down a show the other day because it was one of those urban gigs. And I knew he was just booking me for the name. He was just booking me for the name as opposed to my content. And I knew it was going to be one of those ones where it's a 500 pound gig. He's going to come up to me towards the end of the show and say, listen, we've run out of time because we did a, a, a tap dancing show in the middle of the, of the comedy show. Can you do five minutes? And I didn't want to do that. You know, I said, look, man, I just told him I'm busy that day. And it, it's, it's weird because everyone's like to me, you're turning down 500 pounds for, for, for five minutes. For me. Are, are you crazy? I'd go in there and just sing for five minutes. But when you're a comedian, when you're doing what you love, it's not about the money no more. For me, it's always about the show. The show has to be good, man. Like I have to have given some, them something and they've taken it and we've had a good time. The best money I've ever been paid for a show is when a guy came up to me after the show and said to me, I got into comedy because of you. No amount of money can top that because it's like, wow, I've inspired someone. And that's why I wanted, that's why I left the urban circuit because I knew we had to do better. Do, do you think, and this is, this is a challenging one, 
Do you think that there is almost a, a sub-circuit or a sub-genre of the sort of Soho theatre show where you are, you're pitching the show as, this is my background, this is my origin, mm. the show is called Legal Immigrant. Mm. I feel like there are, there's more than one non-white comic doing a show about their immigration their personal journey. Mm. Is that, are you aware of that as a sort of a, do you have to tread carefully to not try and sell the same product yeah, as a lot of definitely, other definitely. I mean, because, yeah, because I was going to call my show Minority Report, but then someone told me Abba Vidal called hers Minority <laughs> right, Report okay. back then. So I had okay. to say, okay, straight away from that. The reason why I called it Legal Immigrant was because even though I felt like, I guess as a minority, you feel like even though you're, even if you're born and raised in England, you still have that tie to your origins so you're, you can, you're you're legally allowed in this country but in some way you're still an immigrant so that's why I call it legal immigrant and um, so but I guess there is that feeling that you don't want to you know push the same story but even even with the immigration story everyone's story is unique like no one has my story well I don't think so <laughs> no one on the circuit anyway and so as long as I can stay true to my story, it doesn't matter what anyone else is putting out because Fumbi's one will be Fumbi's one. Do you know what I mean? And then his one will be his one and that one will be that one. But the reason why everyone does that is because it's like, okay, yeah, you know, I have this edge. You have to get in with your your unique selling point. You've heard that before, haven't you? Yeah, yeah. Your USP, what's your unique selling point? And whether I like it or not, my unique selling point is I'm a, I was born in Britain and I have Nigerian parents. Is, is there, if you look at like Chris Rock's unique selling yeah. point, it's not his journey as a black guy in no, America no. so much as his viewpoint. Yes. His attitude. His attitude. So is that what you are kind of, is that the thing that the next thing you have to chase is actually the USP not being the story of where you're from, mm. but the story of where you're at. And that's what I'm trying to see. When I say, I say myself, I'm trying, to be, I'm trying to be more British. I'm trying to accept myself in this country, you know, and not have that, you're Nigerian or yeah, I should be more this or that. You know, I'm trying to be more me. And that's right. So it's my viewpoint of me in England as this guy. You know, I'm, I, it's like when I go on stage and talk about the Brexit and I'm like, guys, I don't know anything about the Brexit. So do we know what's going on? I'm talking about how I feel now, you know? Yeah. And that's why I got the whole thing. Can you imagine my mom is looking down on people now, you know? Sure. That's where that's coming from, you know? Before you're right, it's like, you know, that entry point, you're trying to find your feet. But like you said, it's more about Chris Rock's viewpoint now as opposed, when he first started, it was a straight bunch of, you know, whatever. But now it's his take. Same as Chappelle. Now it's their take yeah. of themselves in America. Yeah. And that's where I want to get to, where I'm talking about myself. So we've got to wrap up, but let yes, me Stuart. ask you, uh, this is a thing I enjoy uh, asking people. Sometimes it could be quite difficult. Um, review yourself. If you were a critic watching you do a show, what, <laughs> what areas do you think are your... Uh, strengths and what areas do you think are your weaknesses and this is a very personal like mm. my strength is I'm naturally funny without being the what's the what's the the, the arse you said at the beginning but um, I think <laughs> what I get a lot of the times I'm naturally funny and I'm very likable you, when you when you do stand up, you got to read what people say about you. It's so important whether you like it or not because that's that's how you can't see yourself on that stage. They see you and I know I'm instantly likable. I lost my call at the comedy store the other night. Go on. And yeah, and Mandy Knight came up to me and said, Fumbi, you can't lose your call on stage because of your persona. What happened? 
Someone was talking. Okay. <laughs> Do you know, I think I have a very similar problem to this. I am, a, it's very hard to say this about oneself. I'm a likeable act. That's yes. part of what I'm selling yeah, is likeability. Yeah, it's yeah. And if I lose my temper. It's not likeable. It's not likeable and you're breaking the you're contract. Breaking the, you're breaking you're just, yeah, excuse, you're just, and I, I, I yelled at him. Not you to yell, just him to shut up. And at him, but the whole audience was like, oh, yeah. we liked him. Yeah, and I get, I don't know what you get. I get, Ooh. Like, <laughs> what I'm saying? That's, yeah. that's even worse because they're like, oh, he's, he's getting upset now, is he? Exactly. And it's like, I had to realize that, you know, that's your brand. Imagine Michael McIntyre going off on a, it doesn't matter how it looks, it's Michael McIntyre yelling at someone. Oh my God, what's wrong here? You have to stay in that moment. And I had to learn that because I'm a likable act, like you said. Like I said, I'm a likable person. So I use that as a strength. And I use that to say a lot of the stuff I can try and say, especially with race and get away with it because they're like, oh, but he's likable, you know? Yes. I think my weaknesses are, I hate writing. And um, <laughs> <laughs> like why, do you, why do you hate writing? Have you, set, have you made lots of attempts to sit down and hack I have out a very short it? attention span. It's ridiculous. It's so bad. Like I can be trying to write material, look out the window, and I'm in Spain after that. <laughs> <laughs> do you give yourself a hard time about that, oh, or do you so let yourself much, go? Oh, okay. But do you know what it is. I found a way that works for Fumbi. Okay. I realize I'm not a sit down writer guy. So what I do is I sit down, I put out the pen and everything, I start writing nonsense. I write little words. I write them sideways to keep my mind educated and excited. I'd write in different colors. I'm like a five year old man. And then, but this gets me excited. <laughs> then I start talking about my routines. Then I get up, pick up the aftershave thing, stand up in front of my room, start doing my routine. Okay, on your around, own in the room. On my own in my room, okay. yeah. Find my nuances, you know, as your person, as your natural person. Now I say, okay, that sounds fine, that sounds funny. You know, when you try it with someone, you know, then I call my trusted friend, run out the routine, you know, it's like, that's all shit for me. Like, you yeah. know, I, knew, I knew it was bad, I knew it was bad. But, but, I, but what I've done is I've tried something. Sometimes it works great. You know, you go, oh my God, I've got a good routine here. And that's how I realized that's how Fumi's going to write. So I found how it worked for me. Like, I have to get up, I can't sit down. Sometimes I go for a walk. This is my writing session. <laughs> like I started writing, like I'm going to write for two hours now. I started writing 10 minutes in, I'm going for a walk. But what I'm going to do on that walk is pave everything in my head. Keep talking about it, keep talking about it. Sometimes I'm on the street, I'm talking to myself, but like, is he okay? And then you're like, okay, that sounds good. I go back, I write the, the punchline points that I want to get hit on. And then I go to the comedy club and I run, run it through. Sometimes you forget, sometimes you remember, but that's how I made it work for me. And those, those, that's not my only, that's the weakness I have. And also, I'm, I hold back too much. I'm always afraid to try something. I'm always afraid to fail. Okay. On okay. Stage. That's, uh, that's you know? very, uh, failing on stage is probably the best thing for every comedian. Yeah. But we don't want to do it. It's the hardest thing. You know, Stuart, when you got that. That's the, pe- the people who are really good are the oh, people who went care. out there and, and failed care. and failed and failed. I, I was watching Bill Hicks one time and I remember I, was, I, did, um, I did my um, my show. Um, Tom, is it Tom? Tom, from, I forget his surname. He directed my show. And um, he said to me, do you know why Bill Hicks was such a great comedian? I said, no. He said, because he was comfortable with silence. And that changed my whole Edinburgh show. Because silence for me means you're dying, you're dead, get off stage or be funny. Whereas for, for Bill Hicks, silence was whatever. He would do a punch and it didn't even go over. And he didn't even break a sweat. <laughs> and I'm like, are you okay? They're not laughing. Whereas me, and that's what I had to understand. You yeah. know, you know, I'm trying to find a new opener now. My opener's so good, I can't let go. Now, I need a new opener. I need a new opener. Desperately need a new opener. I'm so afraid to just fail on like 10 openers until I get the right one. And that's what I'm trying to learn. You know, it's so important to just say, you know what? Like Patrice used to say, I'd go out and I'd do a 10 minute routine. I'm more excited about that two new minutes I tried 
then the entire eight that I know. And that's what I'm trying to learn, you know? Go out there, just try that new stuff. It might not work. <laughs> just saying that alone is like, are you serious? You've broken a sweat. <laughs> exactly. I'm like, am I talking here? It might not work, which is the most, the scariest thing ever. But at least that's, you know. That's the danger. You've got to unpick the danger in the background of smashing it and smashing it it's in a different good. environment. It's not good. You can't keep doing that. I you- smashed a new material night, Stuart. Waste of time. <laughs> <laughs> Even Christian said to me, Fumba, you've got to start doing these new material nights. I was, you're not going to get nothing from it. And it's true. I stopped going to new material nights looking to have a good gig. I went there looking to have a car crash. I'm like, why am I going to this? This is a new material. Now. Why am I soaring? You know, that means I'm not learning nothing. You know, let go of all of that. Go to a new material night. I went to Top Secret. Didn't even write much. Just had two ideas in my head and went on stage and said, whatever happens will happen. At the end of the day, and then I just tell the crowd, listen, man, I'm funny. You guys have just been whatever. And then, you know, whatever, whatever I can get out of it. But I have to learn to Do you know, film more. Top Secret is the future of comedy. Oh, I, was, man. I was having this conversation. I've mentioned this before in the show, having this conversation with Tanya Moore about how it is it's the, the only mixed yeah. really mixed crowd yeah, foreign, in London foreigners come out to, to, to Top Secret yep. and when they get your gags you're like wow I'm back in towards Romania uh-huh, tomorrow it's not just tourists and it's not just old people yeah. or young people or black people yeah. or white people yeah, it's, it's a mixed it's crowd it's a really mixed yeah. crowd and I think that's why it's and got the new so material much energy to it are great yeah right yeah like people come out they give you a chance you know even yeah. if it's not funny you know you give you a chance and you, you're really working out you know and that's what I love about comedy the mainstream anyway the workout aspect we get to work out gig 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 until you've got a solid 20 you know when you've got a solid 20 you know you think about comedian is when you have a solid set you're never nervous you're like oh, you, you can't wait till you hear this shit <laughs> wait till you hear what I have to say you know when it's not that solid 20 that's when you're like okay you know do you want to go on first I'll, I'll go on third you know and that's what that's what I'm trying to you know I'm just trying to get that moment where I'm like you know what I'm not afraid to just die on this stage I'm, I, I can just be me and I think once I can get that yeah so last question mm. you can interpret this however you like mm-hmm. what would you have engraved on your comedy gravestone <laughs> wow um, what would I have <laughs> take as long as you like I'll cut the silence oh my gosh that's an interesting one um, I don't know I'll probably just have something like Fumbi um, uh, just Fumbi Fumbert <laughs> I'd have Fumbert Fumbert did it I don't know, man. It's just, it's weird. I think I'll just have, I just, hopefully I'd like to think I'd achieved uh, the things I wanted to in comedy. And if it's just, I wanted to call my show the Fumbi thing is, because my name is Fumbi and it's funny and, you know, they mix on words. So maybe I'll have, you know, the Fumbiest Man Alive. Which <laughs> is short for the funniest man alive, but you know what I mean. <laughs> the Fumbiest Man Alive. May he rest in peace kind of thing. You know, that kind of stuff. Yeah. Something funny like that. Thanks, man. Thank you very much. I've had a great time, Stuart, man. This has been one of the best podcasts I've ever done. So, yeah. Thanks Thanks for having me, man. Really appreciate it. Thank you. So, that was Fumbi. Many thanks to Fumbi. Thanks for coming along. Um, And uh, what I mean... It's a whole other world, right? The whole of the uh, the black and urban circuit. I'm going to get along to see some some urban circuit gigs and uh, and... I mean, it sounds awful to say I'm going to report back. That's not what I mean at all. But um, 
certainly there's a there's a gap in my knowledge there which i i hope to shore up i'll do a bit of research go and see some live shows it's just hard when I, i've got this it's the ken dodd syndrome it's the ken dodd problem i am desperate to do an interview with ken dodd i really want to see him live before i invite him to do an interview he gigs constantly but not frequently if you see what i mean and his gigs tend to be either miles away from where i am or on friday and saturday nights where i'm making money to feed my family so guys Donate me some money to the Ken Dodd Fund and I'll take a night off work and go and see Ken Dodd somewhere and I'll get him because obviously we want to hear from Ken. Um, I am also doing some further booking for uh, Montreal and LA Podfest and what have you, but I'll tell you all about that in the waffle if you care to stick around. That's all for now. Thank you very much to Johnny Mouncer, uh, who is my temporary editor, uh, taking the place of Nathan Wood for the moment. And uh, thank you to you for listening. Thank you to Emily Crosby for her logging skills and indeed Olivia Phipps, who's back on the logging horse. Uh, and Matt Hoss and Simon Zeck, who are helping me out with a little project as well. So uh, thanks to all of those guys and girls. And that will do us for now. The baby's woken up. Uh, that concludes the podcast. I'm going to go and rescue the baby. Then there may be a little waffle. Well, thanks for joining me for this. It might not be very long. I'm I'm struggling to get over the Brexit vote. Uh, the risk of stop. I'm not taking. I think I think I said as much last time. I'm not taking any correspondence on this. I've got enough going on in my life. I'm just venting. So if you disagree with me, that's absolutely fine. You can uh, you can switch off or find other people to to uh, to talk about. It's just so. Oh God! It's. I mean, it's okay. What are the positives? Very exciting time politically, isn't it? No one knows what the hell is going on and everything's falling apart. Um, I am scared for my baby. I'm, I'm gutted for him. I'm gutted for him. I want him to be European. I want him to be European in a sense other than simply because he lives in the landmass, <laughs> the, the agreed continent of Europe. But I want, I want to have a little European guy. I want him to be able to... <laughs> I was going to say, I wanted to be able to wear a Mexican hat if he wants to. Well, that is still absolutely his right. But I want him to be connected. I, I benefited so much from uh, college going to... Uh, I, I did like a, a three-month project in the Netherlands in uh, in the Hogeschool für de Kunste in Utrecht and really benefited from it. Uh, it was like an Erasmus programme with European funding and that was great. i tell you what, the most tangible... I was at Glastonbury over the weekend... And that was fun with a baby for the first time, because if you thought it took a long time to organise you and all your friends to leave the tent and go somewhere, try adding someone who needs randomly timed naps to the mix. Um, but on the last night, on the Sunday, I was I went and saw Plaid. Absolutely love Plaid. And uh, hello to Jamie Porteous, if you happen to be listening to this, um, who uh, is a fellow Plaid fan and also turned me on to the band Holy Fuck, who I'm very much enjoying. But... Um, uh, I was chatting to Jamie and a couple of his friends and they were talking about how they'd met at the University of Plymouth and uh, they they said, oh, I mean, it's, you know, I won't slag it off on their behalf, but they said uh, words to the effect of, you know, it's not the prettiest city in the country. But we always thought eventually it'd get European capital city of cult. Oh, oh, well, it won't now, will it? And that was a really crushing tangible kind of a, a, a notice that there we go no that's not happening anymore I, I'm still clinging on to the idea that it may not happen because it's so politically toxic and these awful stories I was I was talking to my partner earlier on this week trying to lend some kind of balance and calmness and basically I'm as freaked out as she is but I was trying to give a 
What's what's the devil's advocate when you're not just using it as an excuse to be a bell end? I don't know. <laughs> Maybe like devil's advocate, but like devil's devil's uh, opponent. Um, she was freaking out about all these racist attacks that have been happening recently, and I said, "Come on, let's take this uh, calmly and casually." Obviously, they are going to be more. It's it's a thrilling narrative, isn't it? When newspapers are all about thrilling narratives, there were already racist incidents. And now the possibly, who knows, maybe the same number of racist, horrible incidents taking place. Maybe they're simply being, they're coming up higher in everyone's news feed. To use a a Facebook analogy for print media. But, you know, they're being focused on because it's a more thrilling narrative that, oh, we've got a, we've done a Brexit vote. We've done a Brexit and, uh, and the country's gone to shit. And we've, uh, we've just empowered all the racists and made all the racists feel they have license. I'm not calling everyone that voted leave a racist, but... You know, everyone that... Well, it's not my quote, but uh, certainly all the racists voted leave. So, we... Uh, no no correspondence. <laughs> and, um, and so I was trying to make that point, and I couldn't even make that point, because anecdotal evidence isn't evidence, but anecdotally speaking, holy shit, my timeline and my Twitter feed and everything is just absolutely clogged up with people reporting personal stories of seeing people in public places feeling if not racially abusing people directly in some awful tram youtube incident then at least feeling far freer to say racist things in public feeling like oh look a majority of us whether or not that's the case the perception of the case the perception is that the majority of us are happy if everyone were to leave and that's just i mean it's just mangled isn't it it's just a horrible situation to think that i was listening to radio 4 last night listening to a panel of business leaders discuss the options and literally the best option the best case is that everything remains the same except we have less of a say far less of a say you know the we're not gonna i christ gove gove are you kidding me gove uh, we're not going to have a situation where a Tory leader takes charge, hits the button, and then uh, is prepared to accept free movement. I can't see that happening. That would be the the best, the least worst case. So if we're not prepared to accept free movement of people, and my dad lives in Spain, he's an expat, and I've always been very fr- proud that among all of his friends, he's the only expat uh, English person living in, in amongst his friends certainly in Spain hello if you're listening you're all very lovely people I've always been very proud my dad is the only person who's learned any Spanish um, but what are they now these these immigrants they're going to be um, em- immigrants from our point of view immigrants from Spain's. you know they're okay residents residencias and what have you are, you know they're not all going to get sent packing but we want free movement we want I want free movement and the idea that we that collectively a majority of us voted for something which we either didn't understand or which we thought meant something else or which we didn't understand the ramifications of. Jesus Christ, this is why we voted politicians in so that they could cope with this incredibly difficult stuff. I remember seeing Michael Legg. Hello, Michael. I remember seeing Michael Legg tweeting, uh, Facebooking days before, for days it's just an opinion poll. It doesn't mean anything. And it should be just an opinion poll because 
I've been, I've been, I was chatting to a friend of mine yesterday who said, and I completely agree with this, I'm more, I'm more politically engaged now, at the moment, this last week, than I probably ever have been. I'm listening to podcasts, reading a lot of newspapers, and um, you know, blogs and so on. And I still can't remotely get my head around it or understand all the ramifications of it. So what good have all of the rest of us, what good have I, who at that time wasn't doing that kind of level of research? Why should we be allowed? I want a benevolent dictatorship, and uh, I want it now. God, it's distressing. I hope we sort it out. Anyway, I, I can't, you know. People were saying, I mentioned the Shappy episode. People were saying that what Shappy's opinions about feeling part of something um, were ever so, were particularly bittersweet given the given the, the ensuing result. So if you haven't checked out that episode, please go back and listen to it. I'm sorry this... Uh, as waffles go, you may not agree with this one politically, but I'm just expressing a sense of bleakness. A sense of, like, if this were an episode of The Walking Dead, right, and I'll try not to spoil anything, I feel like the... I often think this in terms of, you know, political terms. It's all just about, we've all crash-landed on an island called the world. What are we going to do? We're going to try and band together and try and get along. And obviously, within that... We crash-landed here 5,000 years ago. Um, you know, so go back to the beginning of the Egyptian say, for the sake of argument. Um, and so, obviously, those crash-landed people will eventually will initially draw up battle lines, seize their own territory, all the rest of it. But you would like to hope that after a while, we would all start to evolve and go, no, we are better together. We're better when we're all intermingling. I just believe that in my, in my core, in my heart. We're better when we work with people rather than seceding and becoming isolationist to go, no, we're fine. Laurie Penny, with whom I rarely see entirely eye to eye, wrote a great article I read in the, in the, the I can't even remember what it was, New Statesman, Spectator? What's the one that aggregates all the things? You can tell how pathetically apolitical I am. Not, not apolitical, I mean how pathetically little research I do. Because, let's face it, I'm even now putting off mowing the lawn. Um, Laurie Penny said... Um, uh, all these people are saying I want my country back and that's a you know that's a first level what do you mean you want your country back well you mean some kind of ludicrous uh, cream tea scone 50s version of the country that doesn't exist anymore but she was saying I want my country back and I do I want back the country we had two weeks ago before the vote before the result where where we felt like we want to be included so to conclude my walking dead metaphor you've got to you've got to band together you what are we gonna do what we're all gonna just climb a tower and pull up a drawbridge and go no no we're fine we're fine here thanks we'll just be we'll just be fine here and for the rest of time no we've got to we've got to we've got to bloody well work together and the the idea of this we will end up we'll have to we've got to trade We'll trade from a weaker economic position. Fine. That's, you know, that, okay, if that's going to happen, fine. What do I know about economics? Okay, we'll be worse off. We'll all have less money in our pockets. The amount, honestly, the amount of, um, of comments underneath these Mail and Sun articles explaining, oh, this is how badly Brexit's going to hit your wallet. And the amount of comments underneath going, oh, well, you really could have explained this a couple of weeks ago. Thanks, would have been useful. I mean, that's devastating. But, um, in your Walking Dead metaphor, you've got to you've got to band together, and you've got to you know, the apocalypse has happened. 
the dinosaur apocalypse has happened and we've been working for it. Everything is, is that an interesting premise? Everything is inherently post-apocalyptic because we're all just trying to scrap around making sense of it all. And, you know, the government and, and social structures like the government and NASA and, and uh, any kind of organisation, Pixar, whoever, they're all just further down the line. They're all just versions of banding together and a couple of people in in the post-apocalyptic metaphor they're two people getting together and doing some scribbling there we go that's we've done some scribbling we'll send scribbling to the rest of the uh the community the post-dinosaur apocalypse community oh, i mean if i was if i had you before i've lost you now anyway my point is i'm upset and angry and sick and uh, i've got to go mow the lawn trying to find some time with my baby very difficult like, you can't mow the lawn with a baby and a papoose it's simply not safe Thanks for listening. If you did, if you made it this far, well done. If you made it this far, this if you made it this far, uh, give me a give me a, a, a comcom at comcompod. Give me the hashtag underscore horse and uh, not the word underscore. We're not that clever. And just let me know you made it this far. And you can you can vent at me on Twitter, but I won't. I probably won't respond. Say nice things and I'll click like. That's all I've got time for. And to be honest, not even that. Uh, and if uh, if you consider me some sort of awful, archaic, super lefty, then um, you know that's that's your right to think that. But this is on your head. Speak to you soon. Bye for now. Mm-hmm.